0: welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Now, this is part three of the three-part series for this case. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, I highly recommend you listen to episodes 70 and 71 before you listen to this episode. Part one covered the actual crime, and part two dove into the cold case investigation and the trial of Werner Masaryk. But before we get to part three, let's cover the business. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found on the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast, and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, and a thank you message from the host. Now, After CrimeCon, I'll be sending out True Blue Crime merch to anyone who has ever donated via Patreon and or PayPal, so feel free to donate now for your on-air mention and some future merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Now this part of the coverage for this case is going to cover a related crime and how I believe it shows the case is a lot more open than German officials would like. As I mentioned in Part 2, DNA that was obtained from the box in 2006 was matched to DNA covered from the scene of a brutal Munich murder that occurred that same year. On May 15, 2006, wealthy Munich socialite Charlotte Bolringer was bludgeoned to death inside her expensive Munich penthouse apartment. She had inherited her money from her late husband and was known to socialize with all of the members of Munich's high society. Although she had a lot of money, it was stated that she did not have a higher education and managed her money poorly. As a result, she was forced to hire an accountant and a lawyer to manage her finances. She had no children of her own, but she had two nephews, and they were informed that they would inherit her wealth when she died. However, it was said that one of the nephews, named Benedict Toth, but he goes by Benz, was required by Charlotte to graduate from law school so he could manage the money himself. While attending law school, he worked in a large indoor parking garage that was located under Charlotte's apartment. And so it sounds as if she not only inherited this large amount of money, she she owned the this large parking lot in Munich that the parking lot was underneath, and then her large posh apartment was on top of this parking garage. It was the, the upper floor, this penthouse of this parking garage. And Benz worked part-time in the parking garage, and he was not only supposed to inherit a bunch of her wealth, he was also supposed to inherit the business of running the parking garage. So he's in line for a lot of money, but he's got to graduate law school in order to receive his inheritance. And depending on which source you read, he either failed his first round of exams or he dropped out of school or both. But it's rumored that Charlotte found out and threatened to disinherit him. Now, This provided motive for the murder, according to the prosecution. On the day of the murder, there was a small window of time that Benz was unaccounted for. He claimed that he was home alone with no witnesses and never left, but investigators believe he drove to the car park, went up to the apartment, and attacked his aunt at the doorway and then bludgeoned her to death before leaving and returning home. With Charlotte dead, the will would stand and he would inherit a large portion of her wealth. It seemed like a pretty easy case, but there were issues with the investigation. First, the murder needed to happen in a very tight window of time. Secondly, all the blows to Charlotte were from behind and to the right side of her skull. This usually would imply a right-handed attacker using his or her dominant hand. But Bence was left-handed, so it made a lot less sense that he would strike so many hard and accurate blows with his opposite hand. A friend had visited Charlotte before the murder. She said the two of them had a little wine, but not much from a newly opened bottle. She said Charlotte seemed to be in a hurry as if she was expecting someone. During the investigation, the bottle of wine was found to be mostly empty and two other wine glasses were found in the dishwasher. As part of the autopsy, Charlotte's blood alcohol content was measured and was not high enough for her to have drank the entire bottle alone, so it was surmised that she must have had company. The glasses were swabbed, and an unknown male DNA profile, which was not Bence's, and matching to DNA recovered from the box was found on one of the wine glasses. DNA was also found on a drawer in the apartment. So this is how it gets tied into the, the Ursula case, is this DNA from this wine glass that is believed to be some visitor between the time that her friend was over there and then the time that she's found deceased. So at some point we have unknown male dna coming off of this wine glass it's also located a second portion of the apartment in a in a drawer Uh, the dna again is found the same dna and this dna matches a screw or a swab taken from a screw on the box uh, that ursula Hermann died in so this is where they all connect but going back to charlotte's case charlotte was rumored to have kept a large stash of cash possibly as high as $1 million in euro in her apartment that was now missing. At trial, the prosecutor stated they believed Bence waited for his aunt to come out of the apartment and then attacked her and pushed her back into the apartment before killing her in the hallway. This was based on what police believed to be glove marks outside the apartment, and DNA from Bence was found on Charlotte's jacket, but this is not very incriminating because he'd been to the apartment on several occasions and could have come in contact with the jacket. And then it was later determined that blood spatter evidence suggests that Charlotte was actually attacked from deep inside the apartment and tried to flee to get help and was killed in the hallway, which puts more credence in the attacker inside the apartment and likely linked to the unknown male DNA on the wine glass. And so this is where we talked about before tunnel vision if you're looking at evidence that is only going to be looked at in the light of your suspect being guilty so if police play this all out as in that short window of time Benz drove from his place over to the parking lot went up outside of his aunt's apartment waited for her to leave attacked her at the door pushed her back in the apartment and then killed her in the hallway and then left and went back to his apartment. That's what they're saying happened. So when you look at the evidence, you're gonna say, well, there's DNA on her jacket. Obviously, he pushed her. There's a glove mark outside the door. Obviously, he waited there to attack her. And it's later determined, according to the sources that I read, that what they interpreted as a glove mark was not a glove mark. The blood spatter says the attack occurred starting inside the apartment, which actually, if I was looking at it, I wouldn't expect Benz to be waiting for her outside the apartment. If he's going to attack her, why would you risk doing it in a, in a place where that's public or where there's potential for witnesses? Why wouldn't you ask to go hang out with your aunt, get her where it's just you and her alone in the apartment, no other eyewitnesses, and then, and then you attack her? And then that attack would have likely occurred starting inside the apartment, which would have made more sense that it was Benz. But you have to account for... It is not very common, and when people are under the high stress of committing a murder, to think, have the foresight to think, I'm going to swing with my non-dominant hand so they don't link this back to me. Most of the population is right-handed. Bence is not. So it's much less likely that Bence is going to be your attacker and it's likely it's going to be a a right-hand dominant person you have unknown male dna you have the friend saying that it appeared that charlotte was going to meet someone and again i don't know how close of a friend this was but if charlotte's going to meet some younger lover or somebody that maybe she doesn't want people to know that she's seeing or you know maybe he's a quote-unquote bad guy or, or who knows you know what for whatever reason friends can tell when another friend is holding back information and that's what sounds like this friend had enough information to know that charlotte was potentially going to be seeing somebody there's evidence that somebody came over evidence that that person drank wine with her and drank enough wine that they likely would have had the higher blood alcohol content because charlotte's wasn't very high and maybe there was an argument the fact that this person consumed a lot of alcohol that argument turned into a physical altercation in which they end up killing charlotte now maybe the whole thing was a setup for money in the first place maybe that person went there with the intention of robbing charlotte maybe they hoped to get her really really drunk and have her pass out and she didn't want to drink much that night uh you know again there's there's a whole lot of what ifs but again those all seem to be more logical explanations then the nephew going over there waiting for her out in the hallway to come outside so that he can attack her push her into the apartment hit her with his non-dominant hand until she's dead and then steal money from the apartment that he would ultimately inherit through the will anyway it just again it, it's the less plausible answer but it's the one that they went with just like in the ursula case and Benz was convicted of the crime with the judges using what they called the preponderance of evidence theory, along with motives, means, and opportunities. So it was kind of the same thing where it's, they took, the judges even admitted afterwards, there was no direct evidence that put Bence at that scene at the time of the murder, but they just used all of the evidence about the inheritance and the fact that his time was unaccounted for and everything like that to, to put it all together and say, well, then he must be guilty. But Benz proclaims his innocence, and what if some of that circumstantial evidence starts to crumble away? Then so does the case against him. And the reason I brought up this case is the DNA. Initially, many thought it was a case of cross-contamination. Samples at the lab from one case were contaminated by a lab worker that also contaminated the DNA from the girl in the box case. The articles I read said this wasn't true. And it wasn't just one sample, it was two samples from the apartment and the sample from Charlotte's jacket that came back to Benz wasn't contaminated. So there was a big case out of Germany, and if you actually look up DNA contamination, this is kind of the case that everybody goes to. It was actually a case where non-sterile, I guess, swab, cotton swabs, were being manufactured at, at a factory in Eastern Europe somewhere. And these swabs were then being used by German police to swab crime scenes and because they weren't made with that intention in mind the factory wasn't using protocols the same way and they started swabbing and finding the same dna profile at a whole bunch of different crime scenes a uh, bunch of different murders and so they thought they had the serial killer and they were called something phantom and it's an interesting case i might cover sometime down the road here i come back to germany as my international case but it it showed how this contamination this this person this factory worker in eastern europe could contaminate the swabs before they even got to a crime scene because let's say you know when i was swabbing for dna yes i'd swab places where i thought it was most likely that dna would be found but sometimes you just had to swab places that you hoped dna would be found especially with like stolen vehicles or Um, something along those lines, you're swabbing the steering wheel, the gear shifter, that kind of stuff. You're not seeing bodily fluids, so you're not for sure that there's going to be uh, any form of DNA coming back there. Well, let's say you swab somewhere with no DNA, but that swab is contaminated. The only DNA profile on there is the contaminated profile from the factory, which is what they were finding. And there was a dozen or so of these cases in Germany that they started to link to this one DNA profile before they realized it was contamination. Now, what was interesting was that the Bavarian cases, which is where Munich is, and where the lab that tested the, the box from Ursula's case is, was not part of that big case or whatever it might be because they were using sterile DNA swabs that didn't have contamination. So they had been doing things right and weren't a part of this big case so in this case because of that one i should say in this case they actually had all of the lab personnel give what they call buckle samples the swabs inside the cheek to see if it's possible that somebody at the lab that was working with the swabs from ursula's box and working with the swabs from this crime scene were the donors for this dna because if obviously if they were the donors it's a lab contamination issue there is no link between the two cases but they swab like 30 of these lab personnel anybody that could have potentially contaminated these these swabs and none of them came back to a match now it did say there's a one article that i read and again there's not a lot of information out there but there was one article that said there was a lab worker that while his dna didn't match this dna match between the crime scenes he it was suspected that he may have somehow caused the dna to match and as a result he was ultimately fired but again there wasn't a lot of information as to how he would have done that but he was apparently he was either the one or he was there when this this wood screw was swabbed from the box and he was also in the lab for this case so Again, there's not a lot of information on there, but it does create a very interesting link that there's this DNA profile. And even if it's not deemed to be a true link, there is some type of an issue between that DNA match. This other case still, again, shows how in some cases, these very circumstantial cases, they're willing to look past dna evidence i think in that case when the defense brought up the the wine how the wine was all missing i said okay how do you account for in your theory nobody else visits charlotte while she's in her apartment the friend leaves she then somehow consumes an entire bottle of alcohol without her bac being high and why you know these two new glasses and the dna kind of stuff and so then the the theory from the prosecution was that she poured glasses of wine for herself and somebody else but then ended up dumping them out and and again it's that idea that you're going to the extreme to try to explain something that the most logical explanation is that somebody else was there but that hurts the prosecution's case. They can't say somebody else was there because then that becomes a new suspect. So they come up with anything that could potentially be the most illogical explanation and somehow somebody gets convicted out of that. So I brought that case up because of the connection and because of how in both cases, there's no direct physical evidence linking the person to the crime and they're willing to look around plausible explanations in order to get these convictions. and I, So what if there really is an unknown killer out there responsible for both cases? It can't be Werner because his DNA wasn't matched to anybody, anything found from the box and not from the case in Munich. So this is where I'm going to go a little bit out on the conspiracy theory world here. I don't like doing this but in this case, it, it's to me it's one of two things. It's either a local committed the crime or somebody at the boarding school committed the crime. And we go back to that because as I researched the case, the one thing that kept bothering me was the proximity of this expensive boarding school to the crime. Several things were brought to light in the various articles I read that made me think there's a much stronger likelihood this case is connected to the school than it is to Werner. And I'll go through these items one by one. And while there's no direct evidence to prove my theory, it's much more plausible based on the evidence than what was used to convict Werner. So first off, let's focus on the box itself. And this is the fact the paint used on the box was very unique. There are actually many different paints used, and some were found to be either expensive prototypes or specialized paints, and they were not simple house paints that most people would have picked up at a hardware store. And part of the box is found to have been professionally sprayed, but all the painting shops in the area were contacted, and no one knew anything about the box. However, one of the students at the school who is known to have knowledge of the case was the son of a man who owned a paint manufacturing shop in a nearby city. So while again, it isn't proven, it's likely he would have had access to a large variety of unique paints and the equipment required to paint with them. Then the ventilation system was found to of course be woefully inadequate, But attempts have been made to drill, and I read somewhere it was 2,400 of these drill holes into the piping to provide air. And they found that some of the holes were drilled very precisely, and others were done haphazardly. So this is either the box was drilled by two people, one knowing what they are doing and one not knowing, or somebody got into a rush at some point and just started drilling haphazardly. And the box weighed in at over 125 pounds, which is too heavy for one person to haul it without help, so it was likely carried by two people that were in decent shape as the box was found 800 meters off the path deep in the woods. The items left for Ursula in the box are the type of items a teenager would pack for a sleepover. The cans of soda, chocolate bars, cookies, chewing gum, and then the books left in their range from comic books to horror novels. and. Werner was a father of two children, and I, I don't venture to guess how good of a parent he was. I mean, he could have been the world's worst parent, I guess. But if your plan is to put this child into a box for three, four, five, six days, whatever it takes to secure this ransom, I don't know that the most nutritious choice of food or the safest choice of food is going to be you know, cans of soda... Chocolate bars, cookies, and gum. It, it just to me, it, it's something that if, if I was middle school aged, you know, thirteen years old, and I had to quick throw together a backpack of items I was bringing over to my buddies for a sleepover, and I raided my parents' cupboard. These are the types of items I would grab for a, a, a sleepover, or if I was a kid going off into the woods to to quote unquote try to survive when I'm thirteen years old maybe i'd take this because i know that i can get back to civilization if i need to this does not seem to be the type of stuff that a master criminal would put down into a box to, in order for a child to you know survive for days on end it just to me it just again when i read what was down there it made me think whoever did this whoever planned this was was a teenager and while there was some advanced thought to the box, including a toilet and a ventilation system, the box wasn't tested, and to me, it actually looked more like a rudimentary bomb shelter than a place where you keep a kidnapped victim. And I actually went really deep down this path of thinking: this is during the Cold War. This is very close to East Germany and Czechoslovakia at the time. You know, maybe this was a student project making a bomb shelter in the woods behind a school in some case something happens, whatever it might be. And I guess that could still be the original plan for this device, but when you look at the top of it, there's seven sliding locks that would be engaged by somebody standing outside of the box. So this is a way to detain somebody because then obviously whoever's in the box can't access those locks. So if you were making a bomb shelter and you wanted to be secure in your shelter as safe as possible, if you're going to put locks on it, you're going to put the locks on the inside so that you can lock yourself in and then unlock yourself when you want to get back out. So while it may have been kind of an a design of, of a one-person bomb shelter, it definitely didn't have the characteristics that you would see. It definitely seemed, at least in the end, to have the purpose of a device that was going to be used as some form of a holding cell. And while the box doesn't provide all the answers, it definitely raises some questions. If Werner was responsible, did he have a partner? He was known to be quite out of shape, so how did he haul a 125 pound wooden box through dense woods for almost a kilometer? Again, there are more questions than answers. And when I got to this next part, I started asking more questions about the nearby school. Investigators found a long strand of electrical wire near the abduction site very early in the best investigation. I think it was actually the night they found the bike. They looked up in this tree and saw this, this wire. And they weren't sure if it was linked to the case It did nothing with it. But in mid-1982, they visited the boarding school and found that students had, quote unquote, discovered the bell wire in the woods and taken it down and kept it in a locked box in their room. This seems like odd behavior for students that found a length of wire in the woods. What purpose would there be in keeping a mostly worthless length of wire and why lock it up? Well the wire was capable of carrying a signal and police would later determine it was likely used as some type of a warning or communication device by the suspects. One end could be hooked up to a battery when a signal needed to be sent and at the other end a small light bulb or electric bell would sound. This is something that may have been used by students to warn each other when an adult was coming into the woods, or maybe if somebody was back in the woods smoking, drinking, or even maybe digging a hole, this would have been a useful device. And there was a well-cut path that existed between the abduction site and the box, and along the way there were a few fir trees branches that had been removed so that someone could watch the path from distance to alert anyone if someone was coming and some of these branches were planted on top of the box to hide the location. To me, this means whoever dug the hole and set up the wire likely had spent a significant amount of time in those woods. Now, according to the sources, the school was closed for the summer, but I wonder if they offered summer boarding, and they had a private dock on the lake, it seemed like a large boarding school would be the perfect place to offer summer boarding for teens. It is also possible that wealthy families from Munich who sent their sons to a private boarding school on the lake might have a second home on the lake or near the school. Students of the school were known to treat the woods as quote unquote their territory and may have spent long summer days in the woods. And I also, this was the first day of school for the public schools. That was Ursula's first day of school. And it might have been the first day of classes for boarding school. But just like at university, a lot of these schools have... A time period before the school year uh, where these people are going to be moving back in to their living conditions. So it might be something where in mid-August students would move back into the school and they wouldn't have classes until September, but they'd get set up in their room and and then, then they would have had ample time if they were bored to be out in the woods and doing uh, different activities. But it just seemed weird that The woods were deemed to be the territory of the school attendees, yet you know, if they weren't around in the summer, which is in the time period when most people would be out in the woods, those two just don't really match up. And the police would later say that they didn't fingerprint the students at the school, and because so many fingerprints were found in the box, it's possible that many people were involved in the building of it. And one student would later claim the police did investigate the school and took fingerprints from the children, but the prints were either disposed of or never looked at because a high-priced lawyer got involved and shut down the investigation. Another indicator that students at the school may have been involved was an impression found on one of the ransom notes. Pads of stacked paper store impressions of the papers above them due to pressure applied to the pages during the writing process. These impressions can be made visible via forensic techniques that show what was written on the paper, the sheet, or a few sheets before the ransom note. In this case, the impression left on the ransom note was from previous pages was a mathematical probability tree. These trees help solve probabilities to mathematical questions, such as all the probable outcomes of flipping a coin twice and the resulting combinations. These trees would have been part of a mathematical curriculum at the school. So if you don't know what a mathematical probability tree is, basically, if you take a coin flip, you take your initial coin, your, your your first round, and it can be a heads or a tails. So you draw one line going up saying heads, one line going down saying tails. So now you've reached round two of your coin flip. Now you go to the spot that was heads and the next coin flip can either be heads or tails again. So you draw another line up, another line down. Then you go down to your tails one, and you draw a line to heads, and it'll draw a line to tails. And then when you get to the the right side of it, you know the the potential combination for it to be heads heads is two five percent. The chance that it's going to be heads tails because you have four possible combinations when you get to the end of two rounds. It can be heads heads tails tails heads tails or tails heads so but writing this out in mathematics and you can keep going on you can compound this out however many different ways you want to and that's how you can solve probabilities uh, of different things so again this is not something that would have been helpful for Werner with his auto repair shop or really any adult that is these aren't really useful tables for anything other than when you're studying probabilities and mathematics. So, when this was put into the article, I think this this was kind of the final straw for me that between this and the the food that was put down into the uh, in into the box, and then a, a few other things, kind of. But this was kind of one of those. To me, this should have been investigated further. This should have been the school should have been investigated further there should have been you know, everybody's assignments you should have found out if if this had been a recent curriculum if the, that somebody had done this on the first day of school or even going back to the spring and s- try to get assignments if they hadn't been given back to the students to see if anybody's work would have matched this you could have gone through students rooms to look but again it sounds as if police maybe tried to investigate this, and then because these are students of the political elite and the business elite of Munich and the surrounding area, it may have been shut down because they didn't want you know, any, any kids to potentially get in trouble for something like this. So, and then we look at the delay in postage that occurred, and this it's possible that students could not get to the locations in time to send out the mail to arrive on the correct day. The two letters were sent from a nearby town, which was where this, remember I talked about that paint factory, the town that had the paint factory is where one of the letters was mailed and the other letter was mailed from Munich. And with school in session, they may have not had allowed appropriate time for the mail to be delivered. So if they're, if they're in class that day and then they get released you know, later in the day and they're gonna somehow get to these towns, uh, the first one, the the earliest one, would have been the one during the week, and that was, I think, a next town or two towns over. It wouldn't have been difficult for a student to get there, but if they don't get there till after their classes, and then they start this phone thing the very next day, not realizing that the mail's probably not going to even get picked up and then re-delivered until the day following the next day, they may have again miscalculated just because they don't have the capabilities to get the mail out early enough in the day to have it arrive the next day and then the next one was sent i believe it was on a friday night or a saturday or something like that and that's sent from munich which would make sense if a kid was picked up from his parents on or picked up by his parents on that friday and brought back to munich you know to the the family residence and then they mail out a letter on Uh, on that Friday and then arrives the following Monday with no mail service on Sunday. So again, the timing would fit more along the lines of of students and then missing uh, those days because they just didn't time it out properly. And then the request for Ursula's father to drive a yellow Fiat 600 was believed to be a reference to one of the comic books found in the box where in one of the scenes in the comics, a man drives a Fiat 600, which is a rare car in Germany at the time. And this, to me, never made sense either. This request for the father to drive a specific type of car and to drive at a certain type of speed, but then they didn't give a delivery location for the ransom. And again, it seems as if it was somebody who read like a detective novel or some type of a true crime novel and came up with this ransom plan but didn't really think it all the way through, which, again, leads me to believe it's teenagers reading a comic book or a true crime dime novel coming up with this plan on a whim and and not realizing how difficult, because it had said in the ransom letter that they weren't supposed to get the police involved, which all kidnapping ransom letters say, but then in order for them to get a specific type of vehicle, this is small-town bavaria germany and there's not very many of these fiat 600s. so if they're going to follow the kidnappers demands you know how are they going to get their hands on this vehicle without using you know the government or law enforcement to locate one of these vehicles so again it, it didn't seem well thought through it didn't seem it definitely seemed like something out of a comic book and the combination of cutout words from tabloid magazines and the use of ideas from comics also leans towards a teenage level sophistication for the crime and it was said that the tactic was used to throw off the level of education or sophistication that the author may have had to worry would show up if they wrote or typed the letter freehand and again this is an expensive boarding school it's probably got some of the best teachers in the country teaching at it kids probably realized that they they needed to try to sound like they were dumb criminals or or uneducated criminals or something like that because if they wrote a letter that was well with well worded with good sentence structure and proper grammar and all that kind of stuff it it would be too obvious that most of the people of this small town the the verners and that kind of stuff would be ruled out right away and they would start looking maybe closer at the school so it was convenient for them to be able to cut out these tabloid newspapers and and link and link it that way and and again this is this is on paper that had the impressions of the mathematical trees um, underneath or that had been written on top of the, the papers used for the ransom letters so this is stationary that the students would have had access to and then the reaction of the kidnappers and the lack of solid planning on the back end also indicates this was done by someone with means but without life experience they panicked when they realized ursula had died and made no effort to continue the ransom attempt for the amount of work an adult would have put into the plan it seems they could have at least tried to collect on the ransom without a proof of life just like in the lindbergh baby case and and again if if you were so desperate for this money if you were Werner and you went through all this effort to try to get this money this and, and you're looking at a million dollar plus payday uh, get get all your money problems solved whatever it might be when nobody knows at this point that ursula has died it's not like they had discovered her body you know the police had or the media had released that this thing they, they stopped communicating a week and a half before her body was found so it was almost as if they just panicked as soon as as soon as they realized that their their victim was dead and they didn't you know, try to communicate it all. And this, to me, also kind of links to the fact that the second attempt, the second letter, and the phone call, and that kind of stuff, that all came, I think it was after the weekend. So if the students left for the weekend, and then when they came back, maybe on Sunday night, and found that the that Ursula had passed, or maybe it was Monday or whatever, whenever they figured out that Ursula was not alive anymore, that's when they stopped communication. And it just, again, it fits in the timeline for what would have been going on with the students. And then you have to look at the end goal. How do they plan to obtain the ransom and release Ursula? It was almost more of a, can we pull off the kidnapping and put her in a box part of a plan without having a true end game. And that's the most difficult thing with these ransoms is it's the exchange how do you properly get your ransom and then release Ursula I mean in this case you can't unfortunately because she's she's died but you have to have a, a really well thought-out multi-step plan in order to th- be able to throw the, the police and everybody off so that when you somehow get your hands on that money that you don't get arrested there, and somehow you have to release Ursula without anybody finding out, and without her linking them back to you. So again, it just it seemed much more of a can we grab this girl, and then can we put her in this box and just hold her for a bit, and maybe we can get some money for her, and then all of a sudden the plan falls apart, and and there's no communication anymore. And then finally we come full circle in this episode to the swab from the screw on the box that was matched via DNA to the killing in Munich, which adds an entirely new perspective to the case. The murder in Munich occurred in 2006. So I'm going to go on the theory here that this is not a DNA contamination just because, and I have a couple reasons for that. One, there's multiple swabs taken from that Munich apartment some of them came back to Bence, who was there and reason to be there in the past uh, i'm sure some of them come, came back to charlotte herself the victim but two different swabs from two different locations came back with this dna that matched to the wood screw that was taken or the dna swab from the wood screw from the box as far as th- was reported in the media no other dna links have been made so it's not like the other case where there was nine or twelve or whatever it was links it's only these two crime scenes and only these three swabs that have links between them so it doesn't appear to be a widespread case of contamination if it is they tested everybody in the lab it's not anybody in the labs DNA if you eliminate all those potentials for contamination and go with the idea that this is truly DNA from a suspect in Ursula's case and DNA from a suspect in Munich's case, this is where I'm gonna go down this road right now. And the murder in Munich occurred in 2006, which is 25 years after Ursula's kidnapping and murder. A teenager in 1981 would be roughly 42 years old in 2006. Remember, uh, Michael was 18 when Ursula was killed, He was in his mid-40s when the trial was going on in like 2008, 2009. And this 40-ish, early 40s time frame would be well within the age range of a younger male suitor for this rich socialite. Remember, she didn't tell her friend about who she was meeting. Maybe she was embarrassed. Maybe she didn't want to say she's meeting some guy in his, it could be as low as late 30s, early 40s. She was... 58 i believe in age so maybe there's some embarrassment there um maybe again she was targeted by this guy and he came on to her and like I said she didn't want her friend to know about this so there's there's that kind of mystery survo- surrounding the friend and knowing somebody else is there we have the wa- missing wine the wine glasses and the dna Now, if we believe the motive for the murder was the robbery, because, again, if you throw out the inheritance side of things, if it's not Benz and somebody's not going after the inheritance, they don't gain anything from killing her, except for the fact that she was rumored to have a million euro in cash in her apartment, which is now missing. So if you throw out the whole inheritance thing and just go after why would somebody kill her that night, Well, if somebody knew that she kept a million euro in there and now there's no cash in her apartment, killing somebody for a million euro in cash is a pretty big motive. And so if you look at that motive and then all of a sudden you go to Ursula's case, what was the motive potentially behind the kidnapping? And it wasn't intentional murder, but in that case, why did Ursula die? Supposedly it was for... over a million dollars in 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 money so if if it is the same suspect they're clearly motivated by money they're clearly willing to commit crimes in order to get their hands on money and it's well known that upper-class males from Munich were sent to the boarding school and it's more likely that they would return to the Munich area and be in those same upper-class circles as the socialite who was married So it would be very interesting to be able to look at Charlotte's phone records and the list of acquaintances and see if anyone matches up to a class list from the boarding school at the time of Ursula's murder. And at the end of the day, this solved case has more unanswered questions than I'd like. I picked this case because I thought it was solved. I don't usually do this quote unquote unsolved of a case on this podcast. And there is a chance that the right man was arrested and convicted and serving time. But I'm with Ursula's brother Michael in that I feel that there's more likely than not by a far margin more to this story than Werner Masaryk working alone to kidnap sedate and attempt to negotiate a ransom for Ursula. Maybe someday forensic genealogy on the DNA profiles from the 1981 crime and the 2006 crime can locate a suspect and once that person is identified it's likely much more of the actual story will be known. A counter-argument to the school theory is the idea that the suspects needed to know where Ursula lived and her phone number. Under the police theory, the suspects drugged Ursula immediately, and she never regained consciousness. So the suspects would need prior knowledge of her name, address, phone number, and other related identification in order to make contact with her parents for the ransom. It is possible this information could have been on her at the time. Maybe she was biking with paperwork or some form of identification. And this is mainly because she went straight to these piano lessons, I believe, after school, and then to the gymnastics class, and then to her cousin's place, and then now she was biking home. So it's possible the kidnappers could have found something in a backpack or a bag that she was carrying that had her information, but it's Also possible that Ursula was abducted and brought to a different location than the box where she was interrogated for that information, and when the suspects tried to sedate her or keep her quiet, they accidentally killed her at the secondary location, and she was put into the box already deceased. This would explain the lack of struggle, the lack of items being disturbed inside the box, and the ability for the kidnappers to take a child at random and still know who to contact for the ransom. So this, this is the one thing that as I was studying this case, there is no information out there that definitively states how police believe the kidnappers knew Ursula. Because if you're just waiting by this road at random for a, a child to bike by, A, either you just happen to be there and just in the back of your mind you think, I could take this kid and formulate this ransom plan. Or if you're specifically targeting a kid, again, it's it's one of two things, but you either have to be a local and know who Ursula's parents are, where she lives, their phone number, all that kind of stuff. If it's true that right away she's sedated, hauled to the box, thrown in the box, and then just never regains consciousness. Because if you're a student at the school the likelihood that you know who this girl is, I assume is pretty low. Uh, I guess maybe if you've been going to the school for several years, I, maybe you get to know some of the local families and, and know, but again, there's there's a lot of unanswered questions about this, how this, the kidnappers would have gained this information. And what we don't know, as far as I can tell, is the time span between when she was kidnapped, and when she was put into the box. Since there's roughly two and a half weeks from the time of the abduction until she's put into the box, or sorry, until she's discovered in the box, there is a chance that she could have been put in there any time between the two events. I would obviously lean towards her being put in there earlier because it would be somewhat obvious i guess uh, if somebody's moving through the woods especially with with a dead body at that point but there's also a time period in which the woods weren't being searched which was when they were waiting for the ransom and were kind of focused more on the idea that this was a kidnapping and that ursula had been moved to a secondary location that the suspects could have re-accessed the woods got to this box put her in there uh, even after she's deceased which again would explain the lack of struggle found in the box she could have still died from suffocation or lack of oxygen but that may have occurred at a secondary location so again just another piece of this very strange puzzle finally in late 2022 a letter was sent to several media outlets with very specific information about the crime the letter writer was not confessing to the crime but pointing the finger at the real suspect With the letter's validity and the name of the suspect has not been released. The letter could be a hoax and nothing more than a smear campaign, but it also could be one more step towards the truth. Only time will tell. So again, (laughs) this is one of those cases that at surface value, when I just looked, I said, oh, that's an interesting case. You know, this poor girl got put into a box and maybe I didn't do a good enough job of mentioning it in parts one or or later. that they believe that she was sedated because there was no fight, uh, sign of a struggle in the box or anything like that. So, you know, this poor girl, sedated, put into this box, eventually suffocates. Hopefully, it was in her sleep, so she didn't suffer at all, and that's what they believe happened. But again, there's when you look at the investigation, when you look at the the trial, when you look at even the civil trial then that followed. Uh, to call this case solved you know and, and I, I guess again when i got into it i thought it was an open and shut case i read that there was a suspect that was arrested 20 some years later and he was tried and convicted and so i thought it was a great uh, open and shut case i'd cover it in one real real quick story and and move on um you know back out of the international episodes but the more i dug into it the more i was intrigued the more different potential stories there were there, the, the crimes that were linked, all that kind of stuff. I just decided to to go full full on, just break it up into parts here. But um, but that's gonna be it for the case of the German version of the girl in the box. Um, there actually is another girl in the box story that I think has a happier ending. I didn't I just when I was searching for this case I came across a couple other cases that are similar, but this like I said is is the German version thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at true blue crime productions at gmail.com you can also find me at true blue crime productions on facebook and support me via patreon at true blue crime productions so that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye